Well, good morning, people of the Rock. So good to be back with you guys. Uh, my name is Paul Siemens. I'm a longtime uh, friend of the Rock, former member, former elder. Uh, was here back in 2009 when Glenn uh, and Janice and the family moved up here. Was, uh, anyway, it's been such a blessing to be friends with them through these years and uh, still to be friends with so many people here at the Rock and be able to come back and preach once in a while. What a gift. So thank you all for welcoming me here, at least virtually. Uh, you know, it's uh, crazy times, but amazing that we can still do things like this, talk to each other, and, or at least I can talk to you, uh, through the interweb, the magic of the interweb. Anyway, uh, let's get to it. We, we're, we're in uh, Micah chapter 3 this week, and uh, so if you, you should grab your Bibles, turn to Micah chapter 3. And then we will get going. So for the second week in a row, I'm going to start off by talking, with, or talking about a movie from the 90s. Rudy last week talked about The Matrix, which was a movie from the, from the late 90s, like 99. But we're going to go back a little farther even to 1993. And one of my favorite movies from the 90s is a movie, a western, called Tombstone. Tombstone, uh, basically a true story. Tombstone was a boom town in Arizona back in the late 1800s, and it was a, a silver town, and, and it, 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 again, a boom town. It came up really quick. Uh, all of a sudden, there's people moving in from all over the place because they want to get in on the money. But with all of that also came quite a bit of corruption. The town was run by a corrupt mayor and a corrupt sheriff, People all over the town, and basically the town was run by a group, uh, one of the first organized crime groups, really, of the United States. They called, just called themselves the Cowboys. And they were basically in bed with these corrupt city officials, and they were tormenting the people. Basically, tyrants were in charge of the town. That was until the Earp brothers came riding into town. They come in on their horses, Wyatt Earp and his brothers, they were actually weren't there to be lawmen, but they were known to be lawmen, and people of the town were pleading to them, please, please help us, because we're living amongst all this corruption and injustice, you've got to help us. So they finally agree, and they start to confront the cowboys, and it all escalates to this big shootout at the wild, or yeah, big wild shootout at the OK Corral. The... the um, and as that, those conflicts continued, those, um, those, those fights that continued between them, basically, all of a sudden, you had uh, this ongoing war between the Earp brothers and the cowboys. Eventually, one of the Earp brothers, Morgan, gets shot, murdered in a saloon, and that's when Wyatt Earp's rage really takes over. He gets a band of men together, and they're basically going around hunting the cowboys, all over, wherever they can find them. They're going to hunt these guys down. And when he gets one of the leaders down on the ground and he says to him, you tell the others I'm coming. The law is coming and hell's coming with me. You hear that? Hell's coming with me. So when I read Micah 3, this is the scene that I pictured. You've got Micah riding into town in his stagecoach. And he sees all the corruption in Jerusalem around him and he gets upset and he starts getting upset with the judges and the prophets and the priests. 
And he says to them, listen, justice is coming. Justice. Justice is coming. The law is coming. And when it's God's justice that's coming, man, you really have something to be fearful of. So as we walk through this text today, the big idea that I want you to walk away with is this. God's justice is always the answer to humanity's injustice. God's justice is always the answer to humanity's injustice. And we're going to split it up into three sections. Uh, The first one, verses 1 to 4, being the indictment. Second section, verses 5 through 8, opposite prophets. The third section, the judgment, verses 9 through 12. All right, let's get into it. Micah 3, verse 1. The section is called the indictment. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. The book of Micah is basically God's legal case against both ancient nations of Israel and Judah. We can see this right in verse 1 here of chapter 3. And I know you can see that throughout the book, actually. It's, it's kind of a repeated cycle of, of judgment and salvation kind of throughout. And so you see this wherever he says, Here, you heads of Jacob, or here, you heads of Israel. This word for here basically means listen and understand, people. Listen and understand to what I'm about to tell you, because I have a charge to bring. And the word for justice refers to God's covenant with his people. You see, the leaders of that day should have known how to judge justly. How to rule in a way that shows grace and love for each other, a way that shows true justice rather than the corruption and injustice that they were bringing. God gave them the law of Moses, which gave them rules for every area of life, civil laws, religious laws, and moral laws. And in that law, there are covenant blessings for the obedience of that law and covenant curses for the disobedience. Look at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 through 18. I'll read it here. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But instead of following these laws, instead of 
doing no injustice. These leaders were doing injustice. They weren't loving their neighbors as themselves. As Micah said, they love evil. As leaders, they have positions of power. They have power. They have privilege over the people that they are mistreating over the people, and they are misusing their power. You had judges accepting bribes. You have things like, and these things happen in our day too, things like leaders agreeing to a contract, but when it comes time to pay for the work, well, they'll just rip off the workers. Or you have city officials who decide to look the other way when a campaign donor comes and decides that he wants to cut corners on certain bylaws or maybe on building codes. Yeah, just look the other way. Or federal officials, you know, I mean, maybe who want to take a billion-dollar program and give it to a nonprofit that maybe benefits their own family some way. But we've never heard of that, right? That kind of thing. A complete lack of integrity is what Micah was seeing around him with all the leaders, the different levels of government, the different spheres of society. You have injustice. You have misuse of power and privilege. Now, most of us who are listening to this, or myself here uh, alone in this room, uh, most of us aren't going to be at any point in our lives in that kind of a position of power where we're in a government position, either the prime minister or premier or even a mayor of a town. Most of us aren't going to be involved with those kinds of things. So it can be easy for us to breeze past a passage like this and go, well, this doesn't apply to me, but by golly, it sure applies to Trump, or by golly, it sure applies to Trudeau. But hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. Listen. Um, power itself is a neutral thing, right? Because you get people that rail against power, like the old 80s rap group, Public Enemy. Fight the power, right? With a fist in the air. But the thing is that uh, people, yeah, they might want to fight the power until they have the power, but then at that point, how are you going to use it? History shows a, a, a pattern of of people wanting to cause rebellions against power, but then when they get into power, they misuse it in exactly the same way as the people before them. But listen, power itself is not evil. It's the abuse of power that's evil. It's using power in an unjust way that's evil. And think about it, if, if you look, look at your own lives, look at the different spheres of influence that you have in your life, maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in your workplace, times where you have had power in a relationship, have you been flawless? Because listen, everybody in some level at some point in their lives will have had power in some way. Think about parents, right? Some parents use their authority to manipulate their kids or to verbally or physically abuse them. And some parents use their power to gently discipline and disciple their children to love God and love others. I think of one dad that I knew who came and talked to me a number of years ago who, um, well, him and his wife both came in. He had a, a bit of an anger issue 
in the home. And he would, when he'd lose his temper, his voice would get really loud, he'd yell, and people would go and run and hide in the different rooms. And then he would just storm out of the house and go away for a couple of hours till he cooled down. And then he'd come back and people would act like nothing happened. And yet everybody knew something happened. And so there was a tension in the house all the time. Like, oh, is dad going to lose it tonight? Is he, what's going to happen? So they came in and they wanted help with this. And I was chatting with them and I said, well, I said, one thing, dad, that you can do is those times when you do lose your temper, humble yourself, go to your wife, go to your kids, get on your knees in front of them and ask for forgiveness. And he was like, yep, okay, I can do that. So a couple weeks later, he comes back. So how the last couple weeks been? Oh, they weren't good. This had happened, blah, blah, blah. Basically the same pattern over again. And I said, did you do what I asked you to do? And he said, no. And I said, okay, well, you're going to do that this week. When you lose your temper this week, you're going to do that. And you're going to come back to me next week, and we're going to talk about it again and see what's going on. And I said, can you commit to that? And he said, yes. So a week later, <clears throat> he comes walking into my office like, like light as a feather, almost floating in, and he's got a big smile on his face. And I said, said, well, buddy, what happened? And he said, yeah, he said, this week I managed to do what you asked me to do. It was incredibly hard. But I lost my temper, and I knelt down beside my kids when they were going to bed that night. And with tears in my eyes, I asked for their forgiveness. And my kids threw their arms around me, and they hugged me, and they said, we love you, Daddy. And then through the rest of that week, there were times when he would be, when he, when he was looking like he was going to lose his temper and his kids, instead of running away, would run to him. And then he was noticing as the, as the weeks went on that his, his demeanor was changing. He wasn't losing his temper as much anymore. See, his act of humility, going to his kids, his act of taking the power that he had as the father of the home and transforming that into a humble servant type of leadership, even when he did make a mistake, was transformative to his whole family. This is what happens when power is used properly. It can transform relationships. It can transform households. It can transform workplaces. Think about kids on a playground. Again, we're looking at different examples, right? Think about kids on a playground. You have big kids who are mean to others, and then you have big kids who are kind and gracious to others. Big kids generally on a playground have power. Some of it use it in a way that loves others. Others use it in a way that doesn't love others. So basically, the question is, with the power that you're given, think about the different areas of life you're in. Think about your family. Think about your workplace. Think about your church. The different spheres of life that you're in, the type of power that you have, whether however big or however small that is, are you using that power, as God's word calls us to, to love your neighbor as yourself? Or are you using it to love yourself at the expense of your neighbor? Are you willing to follow Jesus' command to be a servant of all? 
That's what it looks like to love our neighbor, right? To be a servant to them, be servant of all. Matthew chapter 20, uh, the sons of Zebedee, their mom comes to, imagine being a grown man and your mom comes to Jesus and goes, can my sons be on your right and left hand side? Like, (laughs) how embarrassing would that be, men? Nevertheless, this is what happened. The, The mom comes and says, can my sons be on your right and your left? Can they have these places of honor in your kingdom? And in the end, Jesus says to them, listen, uh, to be the greatest in my kingdom means you're going to be the servant of all. So are you willing to be the servant of all? In the grand scheme of God's kingdom, if you think about it, are you willing to love others sacrificially? Regardless of if, if that means you're going to look bad, if that means you have to own up to your sins and mistakes, Maybe it even means that you're going to have to face some kind of a punishment, even lose your job or something like that. But are you willing to go that far for the love of your neighbor? The questions that we have to ask ourselves. Because Micah's indictment against the leaders in this passage is, you have not used your power to serve, but instead to be served. You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself, and because of that, justice is coming. God's justice is coming. God's justice will always be the answer to humanity's injustice. Continuing on, point two, opposite prophets, starting in verse five. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you, without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, says Micah, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. You can see a clear distinction here, right? Verses 5 through 7 is the false prophets, and verse 8 is Micah, God's true prophet. And we can see the different things that they declare. You've got the false prophets who declare peace to those who support them, who give them money, who are willing to be on their side and back up whatever they say, and war against those who don't. So don't you dare get on the wrong side of the prophets because you're going to be in trouble. Then you have Micah who declares, here are the ways that everybody sinned. Whether you're from Israel or you're from Judah, no matter what kind of leader, leadership position you're in, this is what you've all done wrong. Blah, 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 blah. Here's the list. You know, no favoritism. He's not going to play that game. He's not, going to, he's not worried about what's going to happen to him. He's not worried about any negative repercussions that he could potentially get. No, he just declares it as it is. God's word, here's the truth, unvarnished. I love you people, and you need the truth. It's Micah's message. You see, in Micah's day, though, the prophets, regardless of what nation you're from, prophets are expected to prop up the leadership, they're expected to give uh, prophecies that are going to make the leaders look good or that are going to be things that the leaders want to hear. 
leaders, for the most part in those nations, weren't looking to actually hear a word from God. They were looking to hear, what, how, how, what am I doing that looks good? What am I doing uh, that's, like, make me sound good? I want to hear my own press, you know, that kind of thing. It was far more propaganda than it was prophecy. So the false prophets supported the leaders who paid them and cried war against anyone who opposed them. You guys better watch out. Don't get on the prophet's bad side, right? But Micah's going to preach the truth of God's word, even if it made everyone mad. He knew that he had the spirit of the Lord with him. See, a true prophet like Micah knows that hard words create soft hearts. And soft words create hard hearts. That doesn't mean you don't say the truth in love. We do need to speak the truth in love. We'll get to that in a second. But we need to speak the truth. And sometimes the truth is hard. Look at a couple other things the false prophets have. And I'll compare here. False prophets have silence from God, the text says. Micah has the spirit of the Lord. False prophets have shame and disgrace. Micah has justice and might. False prophets have no visions or divination. Micah has power. There's a clear distinction between what the, thing, the kind of things that false prophets will say and what's in their corner, which isn't much, and the things that a true prophet will say and who's in his corner, the true and living God. So false prophets, yeah, they like to speak soft words, the things that don't necessarily, things that, you know, they want to tickle the ears of the people. They want to they say things to people that people are really going to get behind and get excited about and be happy about. They don't want downer words like sin and idolatry. No, they want to hear things that they like to hear. So a current example of this, I thought I'd do a real scientific study um, and so uh, on the internet, I decided to do a search um, for something called COVID-19. It's this virus that's been going around. Uh, maybe you've heard of it. Anyway, on the Gospel Coalition's website, I decided to do a search for COVID-19 and just see what it gave me. And it gave me over 400 results. 400 results. Like, it's one of the hardest things that our society has had to deal with in a, um, I mean, in a generation, maybe. I mean, you don't shut economies down for much, right? So here's a difficult topic, COVID-19. How do we deal with it? Gospel Coalition's website, 400 results. Here's four of the titles. The first one, neighbor love in the era of COVID-19, right? Challenging us to love our neighbor as ourselves during this. How do we do that? Number two, coronavirus could kill consumer Christianity. Challenging people to get out of their idea of just consuming videos, consuming music, and actually living out what it means to be a disciple. The third one, practice hospitality during the pandemic. What's that going to look like when you have to be locked down and you aren't allowed to have, you know, you have to limit who's in your bubble, right? Fourth one, our idols are exposed in times of crisis. So you can hear challenging things in, in, just in these four titles, and there's over 400 entries on their website. 
So they're willing to challenge us, even if they're hard things to hear, even if it's something that halfway through the article, I'm going to turn it off because it makes me mad. They aren't, they're, they're willing to speak the truth in love because it's for our good and for God's glory. So in comparison, I did a search of Kenneth Copeland's website, Joel Osteen's website, and Creflo Dollar's website. Kenneth Copeland's website, searching for COVID, zero results. Creflo Dollar's website, zero results. Joel Osteen, one blog, which was actually a a written prayer, which is just claiming victory over COVID-19. Like, Lord, we have victory over COVID-19, we claim it. And Osteen's website also gave me results to videos named A Season of Favor and A Destiny Moment. Well, isn't that swell? We can just smile and know that we have a season of favor on us during COVID-19. I mean, words like victory, favor, destiny, these are exciting. They're soft. They make me happy. Yes, I want to follow that. I want to follow what's exciting. I want to follow what pleases me. Not those downer words and thinking about what consumer Christianity is. Here's the thing. False teachers will always avoid difficult passages and difficult words. Without fail. They will always go to the things that make it sound like being a Christian is easy and fun and you're going to be blessed beyond measure and you're going to be prosperous and all of these things. As long as you send in your money, that will plant a seed and God will make it blossom into something amazing for your life. This is the kind of thing that they like to sell you. But they don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to talk about idolatry. They like to speak half-truths in love of themselves, not full truth in the love of God and others. Faithful teachers like Micah, however, will speak the whole truth in love for God and for others. So listen, it's easy for us, though, to look at false teachers and people on TV and go, go, oh, those guys are terrible. Yeah, like these are easy examples, right? But here's the thing. All of us, regardless of uh, what our position is, Um, in terms of speaking into each other's lives, whether you're a pastor or whether you're a counselor or or just a co-worker at, at a job site or a parent, right? All these different areas of life, there's always the temptation to avoid the difficult words. Always. It's it's the temptations there for all of us. Right? When we're sitting, when you're sitting next to a brother or sister in Christ, Say, let's, let's go with brother or sister in Christ. You're sitting talking to that person. That person's telling you about, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble with church these days and, and maybe I don't need to go to church and I've been investigating, you know, these other teachings, these other, these other books by these Eastern mystics. Um, and at the same time, you know, I'm having difficulty with my marriage. So I've, I've been kind of starting to think about seeing this other person. Um, now, if, you, if this is somebody that you know well, I really hope, I really hope that you're not going to let that slide and that you are going to challenge that person. But what if it's somebody, say, that you're more just an acquaintance with, say, just a fellow coworker at your job that you know is a Christian who you see going down that path, are you going to take the, the, the risk of that relationship and maybe even your standing at work? Are you going to take that risk to speak the truth in love to that person? 
about the path they're running down. Because the path they're running down is going to lead to destruction of their personal lives, destruction possibly of their financial lives, and ultimately, potentially, the destruction of their eternal lives. So are you willing to speak the truth in love in that moment, to share the hard words? Or are you just going to go, wow, you know, or be silent and walk away? How are you going to love your neighbor in that time? Listen, like Micah, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been given the Spirit of the Lord. You've been given the Spirit of the Lord. You've been born again. You have been created a new creation in Christ Jesus. And what does Ephesians 2 tell us? That you've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. Not by good works, but for good works. You're created for good works and talking with others about the truth, sharing the truth in love, regardless of how hard it is, that's a good work. Listen, this kind of a thing can be intimidating and scary and challenging, and sometimes it's like, what does love look like when there's such hard words? Well, there's some great websites I'm going to share with you. Glenn will probably put them on the screen, too. Uh, ccef.org, biblicalcounseling.com, and christiancounseling.com. And it's the American way of spelling counseling, which is one L, weirdos. <laughs> anyway, ccef.org, biblicalcounseling.com, and christiancounseling.com, okay? Those are some great resources for you to help learn how to speak into various topics uh, and speak the truth in love. Okay. Last point, number three, the judgment. Verses 9 through 12. Hear this. Okay, it's that word hear again. So listen and understand this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. You can almost hear the judge's gavel come down, hey? The verdict has been set. The judgment has been spoken. It's basically a summary of the charges against God's, or of God's judgment on the leaders. Their corruption will lead to Jerusalem's destruction. And this prophecy does come true. Approximately 200 years after Micah's prophecy, the Babylonian army destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, taking the people off into captivity. And then centuries later, in AD 70, the Romans do it again. They destroy Jerusalem and the second temple, this time actually taking plows to the Temple Mount, according to ancient historians. Micah's prophecy came true. But notice the leader's arrogance in this text. Is not the Lord in the midst of us? 
No disaster shall come upon us. They thought because they had God's temple, because they had his temple and the Ark of the Covenant inside, oh, God's with us. He's always with us. We can do anything we want. We can treat anybody any way we want, and God's going to remain with us. But why would the Lord stay with people who are going to just shun him, treat his people terribly, abuse his people? And the presence of the Lord does leave the temple. Leaders in Jesus' day uh, thought the same thing, right? You think about the New Testament when you read it in the Gospels about what the leaders were like in those days. There's a lot of corruption. You think about Herod's murderous reign. You think about Pilate's abdication of responsibility. You think about the Pharisees heaping legalistic burdens upon the people that even they couldn't keep. Everybody kind of in bed with each other, especially at the end of Jesus' life at the trial and crucifixion. You've got Pilate and Herod actually conspiring with each other a bit, which like never happens. Corruption stank up the whole town like an ancient town of tombstone. But then Jesus came riding into town on his donkey comes riding to town, goes into the temple, flips over the, t- the tables of the money changers, the crooks, the people who are ripping people off, flips them over and says, justice is coming. Justice is coming for all the corruption that you're doing, for the way that you are, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. Yeah, justice is coming. And it did come. But before it came in A.D. 70, first it came down on Jesus. God's justice first came down on him. The, the, Jesus, the, the, the one, the God-man, the only one who had that kind of power and privilege ever, power and privilege to command armies of angels to his side. He's hanging on the cross after they've given him an unjust trial, after they've abused him and whipped him and flayed his skin. He is hanging on the cross, and while he's hanging there, he's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. See, Jesus used his power and his privilege not for himself, but to serve to serve you and me, to serve all those people, even his enemies. Even his enemies. He humbled himself in such a way to sacrifice himself on the cross, even for those who hated him, even for those who killed him. Jesus' sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his current reign over all things, he is serving us. But don't be mistaken, he is coming again. And that time won't be as a servant. Revelation 20 says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Jesus is coming. He's saying, listen, I'm coming. And heaven's armies are coming with me. So for you that are watching this today, I know there's going to be various people at various stages in their, in their walk with Jesus or their investigation into who Jesus is. Listen, yes, you look at, you look at the Gospels, you read about Jesus being, being a humble servant and being loving and gracious, and that's all true. He lived a perfect, sinless life that none of us could live. He did it. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was sacrificed unjustly, but yet... Or he was murdered unjustly, but he was actually giving himself as a sacrifice for you and me so that we, sinful people, would be able to run to the Father and say, Father, forgive us. Have mercy on us. So that we could go to God with humble hearts and be forgiven and now be found in Christ, having his blood cover us, being clothed in his righteousness and him taking our sin away. That is what he did. But for those of us who aren't in Christ and for those who refuse him throughout their lives, that day of justice is still coming. For Christians, judgment fell on Jesus. For non-Christians and people who never will be Christians, judgment will fall on them. Those are hard words. But they're true words. But Jesus did use his power to help and not hinder. He used it sacrificially, not selfishly. So in the end, as we close here, think about your life. Regardless of the, how you've used your power and privilege in your life up to this point in your own lives, listen, you can, right now, repent and be forgiven. You can seek restoration with others, and even if those, even if those relationships or those, the status that you're going, you, you hold in those relationships uh, gets knocked down a notch or two, just remember, you're speaking the truth in love, and in the end, you will be rewarded with eternal life in Christ. And if you love Jesus, you can't lose that. So listen, yeah, repent and be forgiven. Live by the Spirit's power, making Jesus known. Making Jesus known by speaking the truth in love and loving our neighbors sacrificially. Let's pray. Father, you are good and holy and awesome, and we praise you for the way that you've revealed yourself to us in your word how you freely give of your spirit to those who humble themselves before you and come and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I need you.